This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. The idea of speaking was the idea of casting seed. So when Jesus used the metaphor of the farmer casting seed, he's talking about that which we speak. We are speakers. You and I are seed chuckers. We're supposed to be about the business of constantly chucking seed. The good news of the gospel that's supposed to dominate our lives. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome to Today with Jeff Finds. My name is Aaron. In this episode, we'll hear from Pastor Jeff about the kingdom of God and the way it powerfully changes you and I, transforming slowly from the inside out like a growing seed. His message is from Matthew 13 and Jesus' parable of throwing seeds. He reminds us that we are all sowers of God's seed. Let's begin now with Pastor Jeff. Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13. We're in a series now called Walk This Way, and what we're deciding, we're going to determine to walk and live a certain way because we believe that way would be most honoring to Christ, and it would be most effective in reaching people who are far from God as we try to bring them near. That's the vision God gave us. And uh, as we do that, uh, if you're like me and you're getting older, (laughs) I don't know how to, uh, who classifies as that right. And I've mentioned this before. I, uh, I'm starting to take notice, uh, more notice of people who are dying who are my age. Uh, you know, when you're young, people die, but you say, well, of course they did, they're old. Uh, but, but then your, your schoolmates and classmates start dying, passing away. You lose a mom, you lose a dad, you lose a friend. But every week now I get a phone call, it seems like every week, from somebody back in Elizabeth in my hometown of a classmate that died of one of my basketball buddies. As a matter of fact, there's only two of us left now, the starting five on my basketball team. And we're, that's too young, too young. That's too, that's too young. My question is, and let me, let me show you where we're going here. I want to I present to you a problem that we have in our society today, and then I want to give you the biblical answer. So let me take some time setting up the problem. Why is it that it takes a traumatic event in our lives to wake us up to the reality of the way the world is and the way Christ wants us to live? Why is that? Why does it take a traumatic event? I've been in ministry for 30 years, and when a father comes close to losing a son, it's almost like an instantaneous transformation. He becomes a better father. He realizes he has no guarantee that his son will be around, so he starts spending time with his son. He starts doing devotions with his son. It takes the fear of losing something. I've seen this in marriages when a husband and a wife are having difficulty, and then suddenly the wife is maybe in an accident and ends up in the hospital, and she may not make it, but then she does, something happens. All of a sudden, you realize what you had in the treasure and the gift that God gave you. Why? Why, why does it take losing a friend, a traumatic event, before we start to value friendship or a husband or a wife or to live life the way we were supposed to live it? And we know it. And this, this is not even a Christian thing, folks. This is just the way of our world. Here's what it tells me. It tells me that the natural processes of the world do not lead us toward that which matters. It leads us away from the things that matter the natural processes of our lives. I'm reading a book right now by a Jewish rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel. Now, some of you will know that name because 
He escaped the Holocaust just by a matter of weeks, ended up living in New York City, and became a mentor to many presidents and prime ministers. Many. Very well respected. He's written a book. He's dead now, but he did write a book. As a matter of fact, he wrote many, many books. But the one I'm reading is called I Asked for Wonder. And the whole premise of the book is he's begging, don't let me go through life distracted from the mysterious by concentrating too much on the mundane. Jesus did something very similarly. He talked about the kingdom of God, and when he did so, he would keep saying, he who has ears, let him hear. And that was his way of saying, wake up, man, wake up. There are two kingdoms. One is the kingdom of man, one is the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of man is temporary. The problem is most people will end up living their lives for that kingdom, and in the end, it will all fade away. And he begs the person to hear, hear. He who has ears, let him hear. Open your eyes and see. The kingdom of God is eternal. It lasts forever. And when he talked about the kingdom of God, he did so in parables. You know, the, the, the earthly story with a heavenly meeting. And one time the disciples asked him, why do you do that? Why don't you just give it to them straight? Now, notice what Jesus says. I'm going to do a little teaching here before we move on, because this is one of the most misunderstood parables or sections of the book of Matthew that I know of. And in Matthew 13, verse 11, Jesus answers, I'll tell you why I speak in parables, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Now, does that mean Jesus is hiding the secret? No. The Hebrews, the Jews, were given the oracles of God, the Torah, the law, the scriptures, it was delivered first to them. And he says, whoever has will be given more and they will be having abundance. Or they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away. What's he saying? He's saying that when you build on a firm foundation of the word and oracles of God, that everything you learn after that, on top of that foundation, your wisdom and your knowledge and your understanding is supposed to grow. But if you start out with a faulty foundation, if you start with a faulty foundation, a worldly type philosophy of the kingdom of man, then ultimately even what you have will be taken away because it will all fade away with time. And then Jesus says in verse 13, that's why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, though thinking they see, they don't really see. Though thinking they're hearing, they're not really hearing or understanding. What's he saying? In the heart and the mind of the people in the world, remember I talked about you being the few? The people who live in the kingdom of man, their ideas and philosophies have been so cluttered by a philosophy that's far from God that now when we present the gospel, it is often difficult for them to get it, to understand. Why? Because the kingdom of God is so foreign to the kingdom of man. I mean, how do you talk about forgiveness to a world who doesn't think they need forgiving? How do you talk about uh, love and grace when we are filled with vengeance in our society. I mean, we talk a good game. Yeah, we should forgive, but man, we don't intend to. That's why we love Arnold Schwarzenegger. Because he said, I'll be back. And you and I want to be back. Somehow he represents us. He's a little microcosm of our lives. We want to go back and get people who've wounded us. And that's why we're rooting for him in all those movies. I mean, how many times can you come back? Terminator one, two, three, four. I mean, okay, he's been back. Now go away. That's why my father-in-law tells me the story of Hugh Sensiball, a great pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, that grew a great church called Lachlan Christian Church. Actually, his son played in the NFL. But Hugh was a unique type of person. He, uh, he, he would get very frustrated that he could not somehow convince his people to stop living for the kingdom of man and start living for the kingdom of God. And at night, on Sunday night, after he'd preached three or four times, 
He would go home to his wife and his wife would say, let's watch a movie together. And she would want to watch a chick flick. You know what that is, guys, right? And Houston Sabal was noted as saying, I don't want to watch two people kiss each other. I want to watch Clint Eastwood shoot somebody. I mean, this is a pastor. There's something in us that just wants to get it all out. How do you talk about grace? How do you talk about sin to a shameless, entitled, narcissistic world when they don't think there's anything wrong with them? Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. What's he saying again? Jesus is saying, if I tell them clearly, they won't get it. If I talk to them about the love of God, first I got to help them understand that that's ultimately what they're looking for. If I talk to them about the omnipotence of God, his all-powerfulness, I've got to first help them understand their limitations. If I want to talk to them about how I'm the savior of the world, first I've got to help man see the wickedness and his need for a savior in his own life. And so Jesus says as a result, and as an apologist, I understand this. This resonates with me. When people ask Jesus a tough question, what did he do? He asked them a question back. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? He's causing the questioner to open up within their own assumptions. It's what apologists do. So Jesus says, I'm going to speak in parables because if I give it to them straight, I'm going to have to make, I'm going to make them really think and work through and arrive at truth. I'm going to make them sift through their own presuppositions. I'm going them to arrive at the truth by the process of elimination. I want their eyes to be open. So I tell them a story and they'll have to think about these ideas and the details of the story. And sooner or later, as they get stuck into all these details, hopefully they'll take a stand back and look at the 40,000 foot view and understand this is what it is to live. It's kind of like Narnia and Peter and Edmund and Lucy working their way through the wardrobe among all those furry coats to see what's on the other side. And the thing about parables is only those truly interested will survive. Now, why do I tell you that? When you go and you share the good news of the gospel with people, number one, you should expect them to have a hard time receiving the gospel. You should expect that. Why? Because the gospel is the antithesis to the world's philosophy. It offers forgiveness to people who think they don't need forgiving, and it offers to life to people who think they really don't think they need any new life. Their life is fine. And even if it's really bad, it's hard for them to admit. That's why the apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbelievers, so they cannot see the glory of Christ. They cannot see all the goodness they have in Christ because they think the temporary is all there is. So number one, stay with me now. You should expect people to reject the gospel. Two, you should expect them to reject the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom of God is so foreign to the kingdom of man. Look at this. This represents the kingdom of man. This is the kingdom of man. It's like a boulder. Greek, Rome, Babylon. And they smash people into submission. It's coercive. It's manipulative. Their whole thing is we are more powerful, so we're going to smash the ground. And it breaks the ground, but it doesn't really change it from the inside out. It just smashes and forces people into obedience. And Jesus came along and said, that is not my kingdom. My kingdom is this. It's like a little mustard seed. Look how small that is. You can't even see it unless I put hundreds of them in in a clear jar. My kingdom's like this. It goes on the inside. And it transforms from the inside out. And it's a slow process. But it's powerful. Because if you put this little mustard seed under a slab of concrete, who wins out in the end? The mustard seed will crack over time the concrete because it is living, it is a living organism. It is made of organic chemical constructs. It's alive. 
The problem is that even people within the church thinks the kingdom of God, think the kingdom of God is like a boulder. You think that God ought to smash all your problems away and everybody who disobeys him just smash him into submission. And Jesus said, that's not the way I'm going to operate. I'm going to come out on the inside and transform from the inside out. John the Baptist struggled with this. Remember what happened to John the Baptist when he got thrown into prison? What did he say? He sent Jesus a message. Let me translate a little bit in modern day lingo. Dude, what's up? Why am I in prison? Now, why would he ask that question? And then he said, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one? And Jesus sent him back a message that said, dude, what have you seen? The miracles? What have you heard? What was John the Baptist's problem? He still thought Jesus' kingdom was like this kingdom because he was probably thinking, if you're the king in the new kingdom, then why am I in prison? Why don't you just unleash the angels and break me out of this place? Why don't you be like a boulder and smash everybody that disobeys? And the answer is, that's not the way Jesus' kingdom is. If it was like that, what would the first problem be? You and I would have already been smashed. And my sermon titles would change. It would say, watch out, who's next? <laughs> part one, part two, part three, part four, part 52. <laughs> but Jesus said, no, 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 my kingdom is like a boulder. Not a boulder, it's like a seed. And that seed transforms from the inside out. It's underwhelming, it's vulnerable, but it's alive. Now, here's the other part. Stay with me. We're, we're still dealing with the problem. The other thing is that since it's inside and we are being transformed from the inside out, the most powerful transformational tool that Jesus has for us is traumatic experiences. Ah, now who wants to sign up for that? See why the kingdom of God is difficult for the world? Remember the number one imagery is the potter and the clay. Have you ever seen a piece of clay on the potter's wheel and when it won't conform to the way the potter wants it to conform, what, he, what does he do? He takes it off and he throws it on the ground and smashes it and starts over. Who wants to sign up for that? And I'm saying that the world knows, even though it may deny, it knows a little bit about if the kingdom of God, if I invite it in, man, there's going to have to be some changes and I don't know if I'm ready for that. And so, I remember in New Zealand reading about British shepherds. They'll throw sheep one by one into a huge vat filled with antiseptic liquid. It's a, it's a nasty thing. The sheep, you have to completely submerge them. You've got to hold its ears, its eyes, its nose, all under the surface. It's actually horrifying for the sheep. And I've always wondered, what do the little sheep friends think when their friends are being dunked into this antiseptic? However, we know without this treatment, the sheep would become victims to parasites and disease. So are these shepherds good shepherds? Yes. Who are the great? Who is the great shepherd? Elizabeth Elliot, thinking about this illustration I just gave you, said, if only there were some way to explain it to the sheep. But somehow you could say, now, what about happened to you is going to be tough, but it will save you. And then she goes on to say, wait a minute, th that knowledge would be too wonderful for them. It's too high for them to attain. And then Evelyn Underhill says this, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Wow. The kingdom of God, when it comes into you, causes friction. Because he's going to mold and shape you into something that he needs you to become. I think people know that. So number one, make sure that you know that when you go out to present the gospel, that it's going to be confusing to people because you're offering people forgiveness and life that don't believe they need forgiveness and life. 
The kingdom of God is going to be confusing because it's not a boulder. They're used to kingdom smashing everything into submission. And they wonder why God won't just fix everything right now in their lives and in the world. And they're not going to be part of a kingdom where God appears to be weak. He's not weak. The ultimate form of power is to have the power to do something and yet restrain for a greater cause. That's the ultimate form of power. That's God. And third and finally, expect it to be a journey for people. When you present the good news of the gospel, people will always quote Acts 2. Yeah, but on the day of Pentecost, they preached and it happened instantaneously. Well, sure it did. Because all the Jews had come back out of exile, out of dispersion, into the Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. God chose this moment in time to do his greatest work. And so what does he do? He has Peter stand before people who already were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and suddenly their eyes are open to the reality that Jesus, in fact, fulfilled the scriptures and he is the Messiah and you have killed him. But his death was used by God for forgiveness of your sins. And the Bible says 3,000 people that day gave their life to Jesus. We're baptized and we're added to the church. But that's Acts 2. By the time we get to Acts 17, it's totally different. The Apostle Paul now, it's not instantaneous conversion. It's a journey of conversation, of love, of compassion. In Acts chapter 17... When Paul was waiting for the other disciples in Athens, he looked around and he saw all the false idols. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he's reasoning now. He's reasoning. He's conversing. He's expecting it to be a journey. Now, one more thing, one more piece of the puzzle, then we'll get to the solution from the Bible. Now we throw in Matthew 13. And all of a sudden we're told Jesus, by Jesus in the parable, that when we cast the seed, when we spread the gospel, that it falls on four types of, of soils or hearts. Number one is the, the path. That's the person who hears it, doesn't even understand it. Okay, I hear what you're saying, Pastor Jeff, but that's so foreign to me, man, I just don't get it. Second is the rocky soil. Okay, I think I get it. This is cool. I got a get out of hell free card. But as soon as Christ asks for lordship in your life and to start transforming you and molding you and shaping you and putting you on the potter's will and sometimes picking you up and smashing you and starting all over again, you say, whoa, I'm, I didn't sign up for that. I'm out of here. And then the third heart, the third soil, the one of thorns. These are people who have one foot in each kingdom. They received it with joy. Yeah, but... The world, the kingdom is choking the kingdom of God out of them. And so they have trouble tithing or giving or being a person of generosity or living their lives for a purpose greater than themselves because they're holding on to the world and holding on to the kingdom. They're not fully convinced this is right. So they're going to keep this kingdom in their life too, hoping that sooner or later they've got both bases covered. What they don't know is you're either all in or not in at all. And then the first, fourth soil is the good soil that hears it. Oh, they get it. Christ is my savior. There is a kingdom. This kingdom is fading away. He is my Lord. No matter how difficult or hard it is, I know God has my best interest in mind. I'm gonna, he's going to shape and mold and form me, and one day I'm going to be with him in glory, and the rest, you know, the rest will be the rest of life. And it's a, a quality. It's, it's where joy is central and sorrow only peripheral here, but one day joy will be all that you'll have. Now, in the past, I've dissected this parable. If that's you and you say, man, I want some theology, then go online to our series called The Story and type in seed and sower and you can get an explanation, a theological explanation of each seed, each sower. But that's not what I'm going to do. This weekend, I want to do what I never get to do because I run out of time <laughs> and give you the 40,000 foot view. Do you realize a parable is, is Jesus moving from the lesser to the greater? And what happens when we study parables, we get so bogged down in the weeds. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? When Jesus... Stand back and look at it and ask, what is the overall message? What is 
the overall message of the parable of the seed and the sower. And it's easy because in the Greco-Roman world and in Jewish literature, the idea of speaking was the idea of casting seed. So when Jesus used the metaphor of the farmer casting seed, he's talking about that which we speak. We are speakers. You and I are seed chuckers. That's who we are. We're supposed to be about the business of constantly chucking seed. The good news of the gospel. That's supposed to dominate our lives. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that if you look at the parable and you get bogged down, it appears that Jesus is a really bad farmer because he just throws the seed everywhere, indiscriminately chucks it. Why would Jesus put it on the path? Man, put it where it goes. And the other thing is, Jesus has a horrible batting average. He's only one for four. I mean, if you bat 250 in the major leagues, unless you're an incredible fielder, you're going down to the minors sooner or later. But that's not the point. Jesus is teaching us the overall message of this parable that we did through responsive reading is simple, and it's this. You're going to have different responses to chucking the seed, but never give up. Keep chucking the seed of the gospel. You have no idea on what type of soil it's going to land on, but just keep chucking, even if it lands on bad soil. Just keep chucking. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, 2, 16 and 17, <laughs> <laughs> That's about as political as you'll ever see me get. <laughs> to the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? In other words, when we chuck the seed, some people are going to say, you stink. You smell. Pastor Jeff, you stink. I don't like you. But others were the sweetest smelling thing they've ever encountered. Man, this is beautiful. It's the aroma of life. So here's what it teaches me. Three quick things were done. Stay with me. Number one, it teaches me that Jesus wants me to know that I am to sow broadly. Chuck seed every man. Throw it out there. Do it with wisdom and gentleness and not rudeness, with authenticity. Don't be a moron. That's an actual Greek word, so I can use it. Moros. Don't be, I mean, uh, somebody comes to you in the movie theater. Pardon me. Is this seat saved? No, but are you? Don't chuck it like that. Uh, chuck it everywhere, but chuck it wisely and kindly. I'm telling you that this parable, the meaning, we're supposed to be chucking seed all the time. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. I don't know anywhere in the Bible where Jesus says, it's gonna be a walk in the park. The opposite. They're gonna persecute you because they persecuted me. And sometimes when you chuck the seed, they may pick it up and throw it right back in your face. But it's supposed to be hard. Welcome to the Christian life. It's hard to go through that narrow gate and your job is to chuck the seed. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. 
This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.